the sound of the coffee pouring. Welcome to the Doctor's Brew. I'm your host, Dr. Abdelaziz Al-Khayyat, and our honored guest today is Dr. Faris Al-Faris. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Aziz. I really appreciate you inviting me. Uh, we are very excited to have you here. The honor and pleasure is all ours, honestly. Um, just to let you guys know, already our guest has changed my career like three or four times just by the little discussion we had before uh, uh, recording. So I'm sure that for whoever's watching this episode, it's going to be a major career change. It's going to be an eye-opening episode. I guarantee it. Really, take my word on this one. Uh, now, before we dive into things, a quick shout out to our partners this month, The Hub. Thank you for the coffee. It's actually pretty good, so thanks. I, thank you for the sponsorship. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, the, the coffee is great. I, again, I, another betrayal, I'm getting the matcha. And the reason why is because it's 6 p.m. And I don't want a, as much intense um, caffeine as coffee, but I want something a bit, uh, a bit lighter. So that's why I'm going for the matcha. I love the matcha. Uh, can you tell us, what are you drinking? I got myself a uh, iced latte. Smooth, it's cold, and it has just the amount of sweetness that I'm looking for. So, good job, Hub. You didn't mess it up. It was great. <laughs> so, uh, our guest is happy with the coffee. We're happy with the coffee. Uh, let's introduce what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about medical education. And don't think that this only applies to high schoolers or people just about to enter med school. Uh, au contraire. As anyone, everyone knows this about medical school and medicine as a whole, you're always learning. It's a continuous process, and you're always going to be doing exams. I still remember uh, my uh, cousin, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Noor Alewa, looking at me and saying, hey, get used to exams. It's not going to end. And uh, it, was, it was an eye-opening moment for me. You, like, you do need to kind of have fun with this and kind of learn how to, to roll with it. I'm not saying I know how to do that just yet. Maybe I will by the end of this episode. I don't know. Uh, but... We're going to talk about, th uh, in medical school, we're going to talk about medical education, how it's set up. Uh, we're going to talk about residency, how to choose specialties, how the medical education system is right now, all that good stuff. So let's dive right in. Uh, Dr. Faris, thank you for being here. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your journey into medicine, if you will. Oh, boy. <laughs> so uh, Faris al Faris, the name's so nice to say it twice, uh, born and raised in Kuwait. Um, I went to RCSI Bahrain for university, a wonderful school. I had a wonderful time. I learned a lot and gained a lot of valuable friendships and mentorships. Uh, after graduating in 2013, I went to, to complete my internship at Mubarak Al-Kabir Hospital with the Ministry of Health, where I worked there for uh, five years almost. In the uh, first two years, I was trying to apply to the U.S., didn't go exactly my way tried for the next two years to apply to Canada, and I managed to get a sponsorship from Kuwait University. I've now completed my residency training and am in my second year of fellowship of pediatric hematology oncology at Dalhousie University. So you are an attending? Uh, I wouldn't use that term yet, but I'm, I'm a subspecialty resident to be more precise. Clarify that for me, because I really don't know what's the difference. So, um, you know, people are typically used to the, fir the term um, fellow, uh, but to be more accurate, when you are in your subspecialty training, you are still a subspecialty resident because mm -hmm. you are a resident of that subspecialty before you become fully certified uh, as a subspecialty or subspecialist. So w why, why, would, why would you not be considered uh, an attending? Like, why is it that if someone, for example, didn't pursue a fellowship, they're an attending? 
um, because they have written their Royal College exams. If they completed the Royal College exams, they become right. board certified. Okay. Okay. So then you have to do uh, those Royal College exams after your subspecialty. Right. Okay. Um, once you finish your training, you get during your first year you could do your tra you can do your exams and complete them or you do them at the end of your training for your subspecialty mm -hmm. uh, that's changed now because uh, you can no longer do that so in canada you have to finish four years of pediatrics write your royal college exam then you go into your subspecialty right okay and why did you go into medicine oh boy <laughs> um i think you know just just to put it sh in a short way um, when I was younger, someone I cared about very much was unwell, mm. and I didn't exactly have the best interaction with the physician at the time. Oh. Uh, there was a lot of grandeur, a lot of, uh, you don't know what you're talking about, a lot of dismissal, and it was heartbreaking because I thought that this was going to be potentially terminal. Uh, luckily enough, the person that I care for was A-OK, -okay and they made it. Amazing. And I recall um, thinking to myself, you know, this physician is terrible. I'm not only going to become a physician that's better than them, but I'm going to be the best physician so that nobody ever feels the way that I did ever again. That kind of was my inspiration. Um, obviously, there was a background of interest in sciences, and, you know, biology is cool, chemistry is cool. But once I started getting into medical school and started seeing patients and getting involved in that world, uh, I couldn't have been more convinced. Ah, that's amazing. That's interesting to hear. Um, I like how you're trying to correct, not correct, is it is the word correct or improve the system, you know? Definitely. It wasn't that you don't, you wanted to be that, it's that you were like, no, I want to do better than that. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, there is no such form of perfection. You know, change is inevitable, change will happen and things will always aim for better quality. Mm -hmm. um, I am not from the school of, you know, I'm the all-knowing mentor and no one can go above my authority. On the contrary, I think that if, I mentor juniors or if I have students and they outperform me or do better then I have succeeded. Mm. And I think that's the goal really is not to hold my laurels high on my achievements, but to really push those who are coming after us to aim higher and do better. Uh, do you think that's the culture of medicine right now though? Because that's, I love what you're saying and I 1000% agree. We're all in this together. We're all colleagues, but it's a very much like, we were talking about the 99.7 interview I did, yeah. where I touched up on how it's very cutthroat, very, oh, competition, competition, competition. So do you think that things, the tides are changing a bit? I think there is some change happening. And I really think it's, it's there's, there's a lot of it is individual based. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the head honcho of this place doesn't believe in that, then you got to wait until they move along. But I also see that it's slowly seeping into all the systems across mm -hmm. uh, the various places that I've trained or I've been. Um, definitely the growth mindset's taking storm in Canada and because I've been training there. Mm. Um, previously, that wasn't the case in Kuwait, but I can see it happening in some places. I can see it happening in some departments and some circles, but we're still, I think, a bit far off from our potential. Mm -hmm. But do you have faith in the new generation? Certainly. Yeah. I have a lot of faith in our future junior doctors. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, me too. Um, I feel like people are collaborating much more and working together uh, much smoother. Now, I want to ask about your medical school experience um, as a good way to kind of ease into like medical education, theories, et cetera, et cetera. How did you find med school? Well, I mean... Um, Med school is tough, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. I recall we were like 180 when we started, and I think 60 of us graduated. 
60 only? 60 graduated. Yeah. Wow. A lot of people just dropped RCSI down. Bahrain. RCSI Bahrain, class of 2013. Woo. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, the, the, the pros about it, my medical education was we were probably um, very focused around patients on uh, ethics, bedside manner. And that's something that really resonated with me. Um, our curriculum was identical, of course, to RCSI Ireland, so we still had tough exams, tough examiners, high expectations, you know, and, you know, if 60% if of an exam is considered honors, that should paint a picture of how tough school was. Um, there was a lot of opportunity, and I think why I really enjoyed it is I was in the beginning of the school and was still juvenile, so there was a lot of, like, exploration and new things in clubs and societies. So I feel like that RCSI Bahrain really encouraged extracurricular and development outside of medicine. Mm. That was a huge plus for me. Um, probably the things that could have been better were the, um, like you said, the cutthroat competition. You know, mm. everyone's worried about beating the curve. You know, everyone wants to be. I don't want to be at the bottom of the curve. I want to be on the top. You know, mm. I got. I can't share what I know. I can't. I got. I can't hide this. I can't let people know that I know this. You know, I'm not going to share my scores. I'm not going to share my experience which was a bit unfortunate, mm. and uh, I really hope that's changed. I haven't been there in a while, but there are still promising graduates that are coming out of my school, and I'm proud to see the direction they've taken. You know, uh, one thing for me that I noticed, though, in medical school, and I wonder when you're talking about the curve, my impression in Manchester was that when people, whenever people ask me, how was Manchester, what do you think? I say, you know, medical school is tough. It doesn't matter if it's Manchester, Kuwait, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. What I, my experience was, it was very difficult to excel, for example, just because of the grading, the, the, the grading system. And this was a big shift for me from, uh, because in high school I was in an American system, going into a British system, I felt the British system, and I, I'm assuming um, that the Irish system is similar, the British system is quite, you know, you pass, you pass. Right. But to be, but within the range of passing from slightly above low pass to you know, right below honors is quite big. Was that your ex your experience as well in Ireland? Oh, certainly. I, I yeah. think you you nail, you put the nail on the head with that one. There is a big people underestimate the gap mm -hmm. between passing and honors. Yeah, and you really have to know a lot of the curriculum, and you have to know a lot. Um, to add to what you're saying about the differences in systems, you know, um, pretty much when it came down to what we studied in med school. Mm -hmm. It was do or die, right? Like, they don't care what you did the whole year. I mean, our midterms were like 2% of our exam, yes. our final score. Yeah. While as your final exam was basically what you got. So, mm -hmm. you know, some argue, yeah, I can at least focus on myself and other things. But then when it's ready to lock down, I lock down and, you know, kill the exam or crush the exam, which I don't know is necessarily the best approach at solidifying the knowledge. It didn't work for me. Personally, I, I really struggled with just not having, not being tested throughout the year. Yeah. This was a big shift for me and not being tested in multiple ways because I was used to the American system very much like, okay, you're going to have an essay. It's going to be worth this testing this side, then this, then this throughout, not just in one sort of or two periods. Um, and then that, that's a problem because then I, I still remember going into uh, one of my exams and not realizing what was a very simple thing, like an element of anatomy that I needed to know that I didn't know I needed to know, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what can, what's considered a high yield in curriculum? You know, you could be com perfectly prepared for an exam one day, mm -hmm. but you know what? This is the first year that they decide to ask this subject. 
And, mm. you know, that could have been the last page that you didn't read. And I, I don't think that a snapshot is necessarily the best evaluation of how you are as a physician. Mm. And that's why a lot of programs, particularly in postgraduate training, mm -hmm. are starting to shift to that continuous look at you. So they're constantly assessing you and constantly giving you um, opportunities to showcase yourself. So, for example, at, at Dalhousie, yeah, I can only speak on from that perspective because I've worked with them, um, is that some of the medical students, they come into rotations and they have certain things that they have to do, mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that might be asked is that they have to have an observed history or they have to have an observed physical exam or an observed uh, patient encounter of some sort yeah. where we coach them and we go through the points and tell them, you know, this is what I like. Uh, this is things you can improve or you should change. And these are things you should just not be doing. Right. And by giving that constant feedback and by doing so, this model is probably very common across most of Canada and most programs as well, is that you will allow someone to constantly grow day by day. Mm -hmm. It's not about, you know, I scored the best exam score on this day, thus I am the best doctor. No, it's I need to learn more and become better day by day so I can continue to improve the quality of care that I'm providing to my patients. That's that's one thing that they always try to rem remind us in Manchester, and at the time I was like I just rolled my eyes. I'm like, okay, give me the degree first, and then we'll talk about <laughs> caring for patients. But um, they always did have this emphasis on you're learning microbiology, and which is boring. Sorry, microbiologists out there, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is pretty boring. No offense, guys. I'm struggling. I'm watching Sketchy Micro right now, and it's um, it's it's it's. Thank God now it's animated and not just in a textbook. Anyway, I, I, I digress. I digress. Um, so they always try to remind us, like, you're learning about Staph aureus. You're learning about Streptococcus because it has an implication for being a physician. And, you know, it's funny. I feel like now I'm able to study my preclinical material better than back then because it has an implication. Like the other day I was reading up on um, uh, coagul uh, coagulase negative uh, staph, uh, staphylococcus mm. and I was sitting there like oh my god okay yes fine great reading all this stuff the very next day I was on the ward and then we had a patient who's that's what came up in their culture I was like huh I actually know something I don't need to call micro right now I still called micro but still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I mean it's pretty cool I think in med school what they try to do is they try to give you all the information yeah when it's really hard is trying to correlate that to a clinical significance mm. So, for example, Listeria monocytogens is famous for having a tumbling motility under the microscope. Right. It's also one of the causes of sepsis in neonates. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were given a question that said, you know, a baby's admitted, they're three days old, they have a fever, and the culture grows this tumbling motility, what is it? And you go, oh, bam, I know it's Listeria. Mm -hmm. And that's why you add ampicillin to uh, cefotaxime when you treat them because ampicillin covers that. And you wouldn't know that, like, if I was to just teach you raw microbiology. Yes. So I think in order to have an effective curriculum, it's tying in clinically relevant preclinical fields into what it would look like in the wards. And definitely we're leaving that era of here's the textbook, memorize this. Now it's here's the textbook, memorize this, but... Do it while you're in the hospital. Do it while you see this patient. Maybe just once a week. At least that was my experience in my med school. You're absolutely right. You know, the new hot thing is problem-based learning or uh, case-based learning. Uh, we need to get into this. <laughs> PBLs or CBLs. So as opposed to, you know, 
sitting down and this us regurgitating, you know, the physiological processes or micro molecular um, biological processes of transcription and we understand that, oh, this is how this virus works and that's how we use this medication to block this field, you know. I, I recall when I first started school, the uh, biological agents like infliximab mm -hmm. was like brand new. This was like the new hot stuff and everyone's like, oh, monoclonal antibodies. Now there's so many of them and in my fellowship, there's so many of these targeted therapies that I have to be aware of yeah. that were essentially experimental when I was still a med student. Mm. So it's a lot more important than you think it is, especially when you start going deeper into your uh, field. But what do you think about problem-based learning? Because it's interesting you bring that up because when I came back to Kuwait, you start talking to all the Kuwaiti, uh, like the, the Kuwaiti now doctors who went off and their different scholarship options. They'll be like, oh, I went to Nottingham. I went here. I stayed in Kuwait. And one of the things you discuss is why. And then they, a lot of them will tie it into the curriculum. A lot of people have told me, oh, I avoided X place because of PBL. Right. You know, although if we go into educational theory, it's the research is quite clear that PBL is very good for effective learning, blah, blah, blah. Yet, anecdotally, I don't know if you heard this as well, but I've been hearing a lot of complaints. Do you, what do you think about PBL for medical school? Well, um, I think, you know, off the bat, I want to make a clear comment that you have to realize where you train, that medical school is tied to that system. Mm -hmm. yes. So, you know, if you were to study in um, Japan, the Japanese medical school experience is tailored to the Japanese healthcare system, i.e. Kuwait's the same, United Kingdom, Canada, and the U.S. So there's a lot of nuances in that system that's tied into their postgraduate training and also the delivery of healthcare. Sure. So that makes a big difference of what you're going to expect. In terms of PBL specifically, you know, I think PBL, some people struggle with it because it adds a dimension of critical thinking to what you have to learn. Mm. You know, you do have to memorize things in medicine. You know, you won't know how many chambers in the heart there are unless you know how many chambers of the heart there are. You won't know the name of the valves unless you know the name of the valves. You won't know the name of the progenitor cells in your bone marrow unless you know them and recognize them. What's important is being able to take your information as opposed to blindly memorizing it and ticking off boxes on a piece of paper is how to drive concepts from it and use these concepts that you drive from these physiological processes into solving your problem. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of PBL or CBL. I think it really helps tie in everything together. You know, it's one of those eureka moments where you go like, hey, wait a minute. This patient has this problem and this is their labs. And if you do this test, this means this is wrong. Oh my God, I figure it out. Mm. So like you end up looking like a genius and everyone's going to think you're like house MD. It's like, oh my God, how did you, how did you figure that out? <laughs> yeah. or how'd you know how to do this test? And it's because you were able to put all these complex fields together and mm -hmm. solving ultimately what people, what we do, what our patients have, it's problems. We solve problems. My, my one concern though, is do you feel like the medical systems for education are in line with this? So for example, I, PBL was awesome and great, but what always threw a lot of people off 
was I have this exam coming up mm-hmm. and it's asking, it's not asking me to synthesize any information. It's not asking me for any of that. It's asking me because PBL is critical thinking and critical thinking needs a degree of, I, at least I would argue, a lack of memorization because you need to kind of zoom out. Memorizing is great, mm-hmm. but you need to zoom out, bring things in together and what whatnot. But then this exam is is coming at me and saying, well, what's the exact enzyme that does this on this um, membrane or whatever, right? right? So my, 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 my question is, do you think that our medical education systems are ready to be able to take on this new shift in curriculum, which is more problem-based? Um, that's a very good question. You know, there's definitely room for improvement. Mm-hmm. There's definitely room for... Uh, creative methods of tying it in. Yep. Um, you will find out as a physician, similar to as a medical student, you always have competing interests mm-hmm. and you will have to be able to spread yourself and manage your time well. I do believe though that medical universities or medical institutions do have a big responsibility to improve the quality of education that they have mm-hmm. and to make it both fair and reasonable, okay. uh, particularly on who they're working with. More should be done. I don't know exactly what. Yeah, It's very unique from place to place. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very important to try to figure out how to at least tie it in. Right. So like if you have problem-based learning or you have a case that you're working on, at least derive concepts from that case into the exam or similar concepts mm-hmm. into the exam that you're testing them on as opposed to throwing a curveball and being like, oh, no, we wanted to know what this rare genetic mutation was. We're not asking you how to solve like an MI, which is... You will, see, you will see an MI when yeah. you graduate. Yeah, but you might not see, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the weird Chicken and wonderful. Chikungunya disease. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's uh, switch things up on now with uh, medical education. I want to hear your take on standardized testing and how it relates to going through medical school, particularly from the perspective of uh, a Middle Eastern student studying abroad, because this is something that I wish someone... Dis- we had a chat about this before going in. So uh, what, what do you, what's your take? Okay. So first of all, uh, you have to realize that in medical systems, there are certain qualifications that you, you have to need. You just have to do them, right? Yep. You have to prove yourself. Yeah. And it's more like quality testing. So if you want to work in the United States, for example, you have to write their licensing exams. If you yes. want to work in Canada, you have to write their qualification exams. If you want to work in the UK, you have to write their exams and so forth. A lot of people underestimate that um, these exams are based on their curriculum. Mm -hmm. So you could have been the best student in the UK, but you might struggle with the US exams or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And people have to be wary about that. Um, It's kind of like being an athlete. Uh, I love this analogy. I know I've said it earlier. I'm going to say it again. It's an amazing one. It framed it so well. Please go ahead. (laughs) But, you know, when it comes to medical knowledge, everyone has to read. You know, no matter where you go, an ST elevation is going to look the same on an ECG if it's calibrated the same. No matter where you go, they're going to have, well, most people have four chambers of the heart and a normal functioning heart. You'd hope so. You'd hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, no matter where you go, we understand that these are what we understand, the basics of medicine, if yeah. you will. So that's the equivalent of being an athlete who, you know, does cardio, does weightlifting, you know, conditions their body to the best of their abilities. They're generally fit. Exactly, being fit. Right. But 
riding the USMLE and riding the MCQE are two very, very different sports. Mm. You know, similar to how a football player will practice their shot, their pass, or even goalkeeping, a basketball player has a completely different routine. Mm. So preparing yourself for the USMLE exam is going to be very different from preparing for the MCC exam. It's going to be very different from preparing for the PLAB exam. Very, very different preparing for whatever exam, Kuwait boards, you name it. So um, a standardized test is a great way of creating a general sifter, if you will, mm -hmm. just to kind of wash out who's best prepared and who's not prepared. But it's a single snapshot of how an individual did on that day of the exam, right? You could have had a bad sleep before. You could have had a migraine. You know, you could have been that person who studied everything. But the 5% that you didn't prepare for came on that exam and compromised your score. So I want to make it very clear that I'm a hard believer that standardized exams do not equal into, does not equal good physician. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, I, I bear warning that individuals looking to train abroad or individuals looking to um, go for specific um, qualifications should understand what they're getting into mm -hmm. so that they can prepare themselves in the best possible way. Therefore, based off what you're saying, they're very different and I had that exact same experience. I tried my best during medical school to study for the USMLEs. Right. It didn't work, we were mentioning this earlier. Yeah. It, not because of anything, but because the focus was different. Spending a lot of time on micro for this step one would mean that I would have to sacrifice other areas that were being tested on my current medical school exams. And the way that I always saw it was, there won't be any residency if I'm not a doctor. So I need to finish one step at a time. That was my experience. Uh, what would you say, uh, you know, what's, what would be your advice to incoming medical students going in on how to approach Maybe they're studying in Nottingham and they want to go to Canada, or maybe they're studying in Kuwait and they want to go to the States or they want to go to the UK. How would you advise them to proceed with their exams during medical school right. preparation wise? I think um, so. It's very important to know that when you start medical school, you start your medical career. Mm -hmm. So everything is fair game in medical school, right? So that CV that you're building starts off from there. Um, one big tip is expose yourself to the system. So do an elective, do a rotation there. So you see what it's like. You can see how they think, what's important to them, what they do, what their resources are, what materials are. Then when you come towards preparing for the exam, think of it as preparing for a tournament. Okay. Right. So, you know, Michael Jordan was hands down the best basketball player, you know, probably ever, but he was not that good at baseball. No, he was not. No, and he I, wasn't. I, I'm very passionate about that. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm a baseball fan, which I know it's controversial. I apologize to everyone is watching and is judging me. But I'm a big baseball fan. And uh, he was not good. Anyways, continue. <laughs> so, you know, you can play good enough to do decent in a baseball tournament. Yes. But you're going to have to realize it's going to need you to give the time and commitment to it. So I think what's very important is to be able to prioritize what's important and be able to give everything its time so one of my friends during medical school was he was he was an exceptional student off the bat he would often tie in his curriculum into our curriculum which kind of didn't ruin his grades you know he was a smart guy he always got good grades but he would admittedly say that you know i don't think i'm doing as well as i should or whatever but 
Because he was combining which two curriculums, sorry? Uh, Amer he w we were in RCSI, so he was doing the Irish medical system curriculum for undergrad, and then he was preparing for the USMLEs, oh. much like you know many of our other colleagues in similar boats. Right, 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 right. So he tried to find what was most similar between them and use those, so particularly for CK, the mm. clinical knowledge exam. And he found that was what worked best for him mm -hmm. during his years. He did the CK first, and then he did step one or step right. two before doing step one. Yeah. So I think, you know, it differs from person to person. You really need to have a lot of insight and you have to do a lot of soul searching to know what kind of a learner you are, um, what kind of systems and methods work best for you. Mm -hmm. And to find yourself individuals who are willing to take the time and effort into coaching you. So again, Oh, I like that. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, we said your medical career starts at med school. So we talked about, you know, CVs, extracurriculars, exposing yourself to the system. We talked a bit about educating yourself, knowing how to prepare yourself using the athlete analogy. And here's another analogy for you. Think of your medical career as a company and you're the chairman or chairperson or that, of that company. Mm -hmm. And long gone are the days of having the single mentor. It's no longer Obi-Wan and Luke Skywalker and they're walking around, teach me how to do this and... I want to walk like you, talk like you, you know, like King Louis from the Jungle Book. <laughs> now, you I should love that have... Because <laughs> I got a very vivid image I can of imagine. the big monkey. <laughs> but um, yeah. you want to have a boardroom of mentors. Yeah. And your mentors don't only have to be senior physicians. They could be junior physicians. They could be people outside of medicine. I need to clap for you with that because people always think juniors have nothing to offer. And that's absolutely most of my learning this year has this year has come from juniors so seek out your juniors absolutely you know my mentees teach me so much about myself how to be a better mentor even how to be a better physician and, and how to be more focused and how to do um various things i would have been incapable of without their guidance and help so they don't even have to be med related right like you can have mm -hmm. a mentor who's a, a business person you can have a, a mentor who's an athlete you can have a mentor who's like your little cousin who builds pcs at home you know they, they can walk you through a whole bunch of things and the idea is that they all provide you with their expertise to help you achieve your goals mm. so i really think it's important for you to have the right mentors with you who are willing to take the time and effort to invest in you for your benefit often we have no, uh, you know, there are narcissistic mentors out there who just want to talk to hear be heard. They just want to say things for the sake of being right. They're like, oh, I told you so. Oh, I want I told you. See, why don't you listen to me? I know everything. Yeah. But those aren't the people that you want. You want the people who'll be like, look, I, I'm I think you should do this. This is probably what's best for you. You know, you're free to do what you want and we can look and revisit what happens and tell me what you think afterwards. So they don't necessarily shape you into the way they want, but they give you the means to shape yourself into the person that you want to be. And how do you seek out these mentors? Because one thing that always put me off in medical school was this idea of just everything you ever want to do for the rest of medical school, mass emails. And I, I, to be honest, I refuse to do it. I just... I hated the idea of like, yeah, just spam this guy. Yeah. And if he they don't respond to you, spam this surgeon or this psychiatrist or this whatever. And I hate that. That's, you know, I don't know. That's yeah. my take. You, you, you made me laugh with the spamming <laughs> that one. I mean, like, definitely there are some mentors that everyone knows about and everyone wants a piece of. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, 
this guy is amazing. I want to work with this guy. Mm. But there's two ways you can approach mentorship. There's active mentorship and then there's passive mentorship. So active mentorship is like you talk to them, you meet regularly, you bounce ideas from each other. You, you, got, like, you have to knock on doors if you want to find opportunities. You, know, you can't... Don't tell me emails. <laughs> maybe, unfortunately, some of them are going to have to be emails. Oh, no. <laughs> I recommend going to them in person. I think being in person or even making a phone call or booking a meeting appointment. Or inviting them to your podcast. Or inviting them to your podcast. Definitely <laughs> makes a difference. Hint, hint. Um, so, you know, by showing that, you're showing them that, okay, look, not only am I going to listen to you, but I'm actually serious about what I'm doing. You know, I'm putting in the effort. I'm trying to reach out to you. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to some people like, you know what? I'm busy for like every day. This person has been coming to my office every day for the past two weeks trying to get an appointment with me. I canceled my appointment with them three times and they still show up. I have to give this person the respect to meet them. And before you know it, they'll meet you and they'll give you the chance like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm impressed by your perseverance. You're polite. Let me help you. How, how, how may I help you? Right. Passive mentorship is when you don't, where they don't, they don't know they're mentoring you. Yeah. So when you get training, I recommend this to every medical student when you're on the wards. I recommend this to every junior. Look at people you want to be like. Mm-hmm. Look at people you don't want to be like. Oh, that's a good one. Look at things you would want to do. Look at things you would never do. And take the best out of everyone, even if you can't stand them. And try to integrate them into yourself. And look at the, not the best, I don't want to say the worst, but you know, let's, let's be nice here. Not the better things and try to avoid them so you know, you know, when I was a junior, I hated being interrupted. So when I'm a senior, I will not interrupt juniors when they present to me, mm-hmm. you know, because this senior used to do that to me all the time. Right. right. Or when I was a junior, I really appreciated the feedback I got from this senior. So I want to provide clear, quality feedback just like the senior did to me. Mm. And before you know it, if you apply this, you'll find yourself learning so much, but it requires, again, a lot of insight and paying a lot of attention to the people that you work with. See, I was very lucky with the mentors I had throughout my medical journey because they were very close to me. They were close to my family, in our social networks, all of that stuff. You know, but I appreciate that there's, you know, there's a lot of people that don't necessarily have those connections. They will go into medical school and they're like, yep, I've never spoken to a doctor in my life. And, um, you know, it just it just goes to remind you that also there's an element of privilege in medicine and people that we don't all come with the same level of privilege. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I got into med, I had zero relatives in med. I only have one cousin. He's the only in both sides of my family. Mm who's an MD, everyone else does their own thing. Right. And I, I was starting from scratch, right? Like I was, I mean, at some point I was thinking of, oh, I'm gonna train in Germany, oh, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. Mm-hmm. I had no idea where to begin. You know, when I started med school, I thought it was go in, get out, house MD, that's it. You know, I sit down and the brain, all that fancy opening in the outro and the intro. But you know, it's been now 15 years since I started med school mm-hmm. and I have a very, very different perspective. And, you know, I wish I could go back and be like, hey, kid, you got to watch out. You got to do this. You got to do that. So I think it's very important to find people you trust, uh, find people that you enjoy working with or even relate to. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
I'm, I'm kind of like loud and boisterous and playful. So when I found physicians that were like that, I naturally were gravitated to them. Mm-hmm. Other people might be more serious, more quiet, you know, more, more uh, focused. And they tend to work with individuals that match their personalities the most. So you mean radiologists? Uh, <laughs> in a word, yes. Yeah. I do love my radiologists out there. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Never order a CT. You request a CT. Remember that. Yeah. I, uh, trust me. I, I'm on surgery right now. I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, you know, so with, with mentors, what they, I think they bring is a level of maturity to essentially an immature, you know, doctor or student, you know, at least that's what I found. I wanted to ask you about your take on medical school and how, you know, a big reason why a lot of people don't go to medical school in the States from Kuwait is because they go, oh, four years undergrad. Why would I do that? Kuwait University is direct and uh, the UK is direct and uh, Bahrain is also direct. That's right. I'm pretty sure everywhere else is direct. Yeah. Looking back, my perspective has been I would have preferred to do an undergrad before med school, even if that meant not getting into med school. And the reason why is because I feel like I would have been a genuinely better, not physician, but student at least. I feel like my medical school experience would have been much better. What do you think? Um, You know, you bring a very good point. Um, I think, you know, when, if you start off, like I started med school at 17, you know, majority of people mm-hmm. are either going to be 17, 18, or 19 when they start med school, if they go directly into the programs. Right. Right. One kid who was in our class, she was 16 when she started, you know, and, and that's pretty young. You know, you, you still haven't been hit with life in the face. So you make immature decisions. You may be more prone to being stressed out or burnt out. You do need a lot of maturity. You need a lot of insight and I can confidently say that I rapidly matured in the first three years of med school Mm -hmm. compared to the last three years. I was a very different man at 20 than I was at 17. And a big, big reason for that was because of medical school. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of being studious and responsible, certainly doing an undergrad will give you those skills and will teach you like, hey, you know, if you mess around, you're going to find out. Yeah. You know, if you don't do this, you're going to pay the price. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, when they, you know, if you're someone that really wants medicine, you will thrive no matter what. Like, if you really want it, you really want to do this, even under the darkest times, even under the most pressure, you will rise to the surface. You will rise to the occasion. You yeah. will pass that exam. You, even if you fail, you will pass again. You know, a lot of people are obsessed with this rat race of a career, like start, graduate, residency, consultant, boom, I'm done. No, 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 no. It's, you're not done. You have your whole medicine is a marathon. You're done when you retire or you die. That's when medicine stops. Uh, that, I love that because that's how I, I feel that pressure right now. And I don't like it. It's not I don't feel as productive anxiety. Yeah, no, a lot of people, they, they go on this something like the treadmill. So you know how hamsters can run on a wheel forever? Yeah. Some people just go on this wheel of like achievements, right? Oh, I published this paper. I want to publish this paper. I want to do this. I want to go in this journal. I want to make this textbook. But they're in the same place, really. And, and you know, your medical career, you have your whole life for it, yeah. right? You know, some people finish med school at 35. Some people start med school at 35. Yeah. 
Some people start residency at 30. Some people finish residency at 30. None of these people are better than the other. What's important is the quality of care that you deliver to your patients and the level of education you provide to your team and juniors. And finally, the role that you play in improving the healthcare system that you're a part of. Mm. It's not about having the most papers on your wall. It's not about having the fanciest look. It's not about being the best as fast as you can. Truly, I'm inspired by Ash Ketchum's quote, being the best like no one ever was from Pokemon. <laughs> but that's on the individual level. You want to be better than you who you were yesterday. Mm -hmm. That should be the goal. Uh, I, I can agree more. And there's a lot of comfort that can be taken when you're reminded of that, because that also lets you, in my opinion, have a work-life balance. You know, if you're not just thinking, oh, I need to do this exam or else my life is over, you can spend, uh, you can give a little time to going to the gym. You can give a little time to being with your friends, That those little recharges. I'm not saying, you know, ditch your whole, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of studying or whatever, but I just mean that it, it softens it a little bit when you realize, hey, I'm going to do things at my own pace. And uh, I, I was speaking to um, uh, one of uh, our seniors in surgery the other day, and they told me something really, really, really interesting. They said, working in med like studying, doing exams after you graduate medical school is so different because you know what? You're living life, you're working, you're treating. If there's an exam and you don't have time to do it, there's next year. And that's fine. Yeah. And that's how it works. It's not just, the only thing is not just your exams. Um, so I really appreciate that point. Now, I think it's a good segue into after you graduate from med school, okay? And education from that at that point. Uh, do you mind shedding light on, I, I know you, you know quite a bit about and are active uh, in medical education in Canada. Do you mind uh, talking to us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, there's undergrad, which is now your medical degree. You went to a WHO accredited school. Congratulations, you're a doctor. We're colleagues. Yay. <laughs> Now is the this is the this is the first part where you make this is where you become a big boy or a big girl, right? No longer is just being told what to do. Now you're making your decisions, mm -hmm. and that's where you decide what you want to do for post grad, yep. what you want to do with your medical degree. Mm -hmm. There's the uh, I mentioned how there's like five plus one fields in medicine, being yep. internal med, surgery, pediatrics, psychiatry, ops uh, and gynae, and then plus one are the niche fields: radiology, nuclear med, microbiology, pathology. They don't fit in all the other ones, but they're equally as important. Yep. And then once you decide, you can go into subspecialties. That's where you first become a grown-up. That's where you're like, okay, I'm an adult. I have to be prepared to know what I want to do with my life. Be it on your interests, you know, how much you like the field, what working in is it like, what to expect from your work environment, your hours, what you do. And then lastly, how it affects your social life, because, you know, this is the rest of your life. You know, do you have time for a family? Are you being paid well enough? Do you have time to sleep? Is this something that you're comfortable with moving forward, academia and everything in between? You have to know, I highly recommend in your last year of medical school, provided that you've had enough clinical ex exposure, to at least narrow it down to two fields. At mm -hmm. least, you know, this is not a hard science. You can still have more, you can have less. That's fine, but it will really help you in that growing up part. Yeah, agreed. Because then you'll be able to shape your career, right? So whenever you apply for post-grad, there are three things that you're going to need at any given moment. They should be able to just pull out of your back pocket. Your CV, which is basically your medical biography. Mm -hmm. 
your personal statements and your letters of recommendations, mm. right? Your letters of recommendation are essentially going to come out of your CV. What's your work experience, volunteer experience, clinical experience, educational experience, all that comes in. And then your personal statements, basically how you market yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be able to tastefully tell people how good you are and how well fitted you are for the position that you're applying in. Um, when it comes to training, you are, it's now independent adult learning. Mm -hmm. You are no longer being told, hey, here's a book. Wonderful coffee again. <laughs> um, you have to do all of this. This is coming on the exam. It's on Friday. Pass it. Mm -hmm. No. Now, you know, you want to learn? It's up to you. You want to study? It's up to you. You want to get your work done? It's up to you. But you have to be able to understand that there are going to be consequences for your lack of work or for lack of care for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be the hardest worker, but then, you know, a year into it, you have ulcers, you're sick all the time, you hate everyone, you're callous, you're mean, and you're not the doctor that you said you wanted to be. Absolutely. So when it comes then to training in Canada, when you've prepared that, of course, you've written your exam. Yep. You then apply. Mm -hmm. When you apply, your application will then be screened by the applications committee. And if you meet the cut, or you make the cut, sorry, you'll be taken for an interview. Mm -hmm. When you have an interview, that's always good news, because that means your foot's in the door. That means they liked you enough, and you're good enough to make the mark. Mm -hmm. What's important, though, is how you make the best impression in interviews. you got to close the deal. you got to close the deal perfectly. Like, it, it, it's sales. It really is. Absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. that's a perfect way to put it. I'm, I have a love-hate relationship with interviews. Uh -huh. Because similar to a standardized exam, I don't think it's fair to understand that someone is willing to take a four or five, six year commitment based off of a 30 minute conversation. True, true. Um, and some people are better and worse at it because there is an element of personality to it. Like, uh, not to generalize here, but one would argue that extroverts may have an easier time going through an interview than an introvert, for example. Your average extrovert versus your average introvert. Well put, you know, someone might... You know, it's it's about moderation, right? Yeah. You might oversell it and you come off distasteful. Yeah. <laughs> you might undersell it and come off as boring. <laughs> yeah. Too average, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I really celebrate individuals who bring their individuality to an interview. Not all people feel the same way. You know, it really depends on how well you did that day and who's sitting on the committee that day. Mm -hmm. You might have someone who's like, yo, I love this person. They were fun. They were exciting. I think they're a great fit for the program. And you might have someone's like, no, no, they won't gel well with the others. They're too much. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm more of a fan of like collective interviews or, you know, how they can change that. But long story short, that's basically the process of how you get into Canadian training. Sure. Sure. Similar can be said about U.S. training. You know, you have your application package, which yep. consists of your CV, your personal letter, and your letter of recommendations. Uh, bear in mind, letter of recommendations are only as good as they are in terms of their validity, if you will. So they have to be recent. You can't give them a letter from 10 years ago because <laughs> okay. you could be a totally different person. Yeah. Usually two years, three years maximum if okay. it's from someone like super prestigious. Sure. And people will best refer to what they know. Right. So, you know, you could have done like an elective at like, you know, Harvard and met the professor Giovanni Emeritus of some field and 
they could have written you a crazy letter, but you know, probably a letter of someone who trained in the same program with your program director you're applying to will have more weight to it because then they'll be like, hey, I know this person, I can trust this person, and they say this person's good, you know, yeah. how can I not know this is not this person's nephew or something like that? So Nepotism is very real. Vitamin Wow applies vitamin everywhere. Wow. It, it really does. It really does. I'm yeah. not going to talk much about it because we'll get in trouble. So. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is after you get, so you've gone through your interviews, blah, blah, blah. You've been accepted. Right. I want a bit of an overview because one thing that uh, you were mentioning civilians slash patients, non-medical peoples, what they don't get, and I'd argue a lot of us medical, young medical folk also don't understand, is that when you go into med school, you're in an education program. When you go to residency, you are, but at the same time, you're also at a job. So it's more of a training program, more so than it is uh, education. So can you tell us a little bit about what training as a whole is kind of like? Is it you're going to classes? Are you doing tests or are you just working? How does it work? Right. So um, when you go into a program, they have a curriculum. Okay. So these are the things you need to know. Mm -hmm. They're called learning objectives. Mm -hmm. And the learning objectives is basically like, you know, they can be a 28-page document, a 10-page document, whatever it is based on your field, that goes over what, for example, a psychiatrist should learn at the end of a psychiatry program. Right. So it'll be like, you know, the basics of mood disorders, the managing mood disorders, psychotic disorders, presentation of psychotic disorders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, medications, psychiatric medications, what their side effects are, monitoring of side effects. And they can be very specific or they can be very broad. Right. So, obviously, you're going to get experience, so you will have a job. You are paid. They're paying you in a residency program. Yes. Um, either sponsor or unsponsored, but you're still being paid a salary. Yeah. You go, you clock in to work, you see patients, you do the documentation, you do all of that. And that gives you the hard experience of what the job is like, you know. How do you know what agoraphobia looks like if you've never seen agoraphobia? Right. Right? Yeah. The educational part is that you don't have the responsibilities. You have some kind of protection. So if you were to be involved in a medical mistake or you'll be involved in some kind of a problem with the healthcare system, you're protected from that. Mm -hmm. You know, you pay less malpractice insurance, you pay so-and-so. So you kind of have a hands-off responsibility. You're still responsible because... You know, at 3 a.m., if you get called in to resuscitate a patient for a code, you're going to be there. Yeah. You know, and you're going to call the specialist and be like, um, this patient's coding. I'm trying to save them. I need your help. And then they'll come in, obviously, because they're the most responsible. Right. Their name is on the paperwork. And their salary reflects it. Not to digress too much here, but one thing I do try to remind people is why does the pay also increase in big, in large part, besides experience and knowledge, it's also that person is now liable. Yeah, so they need to be compensated because they they're taking a huge responsibility. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, if you're in a if, let's say we're in the hospital. Right. And then there's an earthquake and a brick falls and kills a patient. Guess who is the one who's liable for that death? Yeah. The in charge physician. Yeah. You have to go through hoops and hurdles in, in the, the courts to get yourself free of that accusation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, you knew that this. How could you not protect them from an earthquake? It's like these are acts of God. man. How, what can I do? Well, exactly. So definitely that pay is reflected in that jump in responsibility. Yep. Yep. You know, the, the more responsible you are, the harder you're going to take a hit, the more you're directly responsible. Because yep. at the end of the day, it's your say that manages the patient. Exactly. You either green light what your juniors are doing or you tell them, no, we're going to do it this way.
In terms of the other education experiences you get in residency training, there's often some sort of research project to work on your research. Okay, great. Um, there may be advocacy projects that you can be involved in. Mm -hmm. You know, let's say you want to advocate for, you know, breastfeeding for children, or you want to advocate for seasonal vaccines for children or whatever. And of course there is structured curriculum. So you sit down with an expert and they give you lectures in prompt teaching, bedside mm -hmm. teaching, you know, off the cuff teaching, because you've got to know these things, right? So you might be in rounds and then you have a patient that's admitted with um, a platelet disorder. And then they sit you down and they go, okay, what do you know about platelet disorders? And you tell them what you know, and then they'll try to fill in the gaps. You have the expectation that you should be reading up and knowing what's going on in the ward. But faculty also has the expectation that they are being paid to teach you. Yeah. You know, if, if everyone was reading on their own, there'd be no need for programs. Absolutely. So you need someone to guide you to give you resources, to teach you maybe their own approach to something yep. or what the guidelines or their experiences are. Mentorship as a whole. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, my, my mentor, Dr. Bruce Crooks, I love him. He's amazing. He's my program director back in Halifax. You know, he'd sit me down and he'd talk about like brain tumors. He'd walk me through it or he'd walk me through the important exam of looking at patients with bone marrow failure. And this was all new medicine to me. So because of him taking the time to teach me, I became better at that. I learned more. And then the responsibility is up to me to read about it more and to enrich that experience. Right. So you do have lectures. You do have like half days. You do have protected teaching and learning time. Right. But you're still an independent adult learner responsible for following in the rules and regulations of your training program to make the most of it. Because... Once you're done training, that's it. No one's going to watch your back. Yeah. You've got nothing to fall on. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what to do, like imagine being like the subspecialist and then you get a call and then your answer is, hmm, I don't know. You can't do that when you're the specialist, you're the expert. You know, As a fellow or sorry, a subspecialty resident, you can get away with that. You can be like, let me review with my staff. Let me yeah. review with my, my, my consultant. But when you're the consultant, you're the, you're the, you're the last line of defense. So. You know, you they're want relying to, on you. They are. So yeah. you want to make the most out of your training. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning to me about in the curriculums, you have CBDs, competency by uh, design, right? Yeah. So um, the new training system in Canada has changed into something called competency by, competency by design, which allows you to have something called a longitudinal integrated curriculum. Okay. So long gone are the days. So, you know, you might have gone into a rotation. Let's say you did child psychiatry for three months mm -hmm. and you worked for me for two months and two weeks. And the last two weeks you worked with another doctor. Right. That doctor is the one who writes your evaluation. Mm. Right. And, you know, we're not being fickle or saying things, but that person may not be the best person to write down accurately what's been going on. Yes. They'll be like, oh, I don't remember when you did this. I don't remember you doing this. I don't remember you doing that. So instead, you have the opportunity to do something called an EPA or entrustable professional activity mm -hmm. in which you demonstrate important clinical skills or the professional activities and encounters that you need uh, during your training. Mm -hmm. So think of it as like when you play a video game, like, you know, you pick your whatever game you want. There's like different achievements like slay 10 goblins, kill three dragons. But instead, it's take the history from 10 patients with mood disorders, um, come up with an outpatient plan for a ch depressive child, uh, come up with an inpatient plan for an eating disorder, and so on and so forth. And you have to do a certain number of those 
and prove that you can do them independently in which your evaluator will give you a score of they had to do it themselves or they did not need to be there for you on a scale of one to five. They need to be there in case, they had to walk you through it, they had to prompt you or whatever it was. Mm. And the idea is that when you do this so much, they can follow it. So like, let's say every day you did one EPA of some sort. In the beginning, you were you always relied on the consultant. But then as the year progressed, they go, hey, this guy's doing everything alone. So they know that when you're on call, or they know that when you're by yourself in the ward, that they can count on you. That when you pick up the phone and you're like, hey, we got this uh, six-month-old. I think they're in mild distress. The history was non-contributory. I don't think they have anything. I'm admitting them on high-flow oxygen. I'm going to reassess them in the next three hours. That's my plan. Okay, good job. Because I'll they've see seen your progression. Because they've seen the progression. Now they trust you to make those Decisions. calls. Okay. And that's what I really like about the CBD programs. And what's really nice is that they're no longer going in the rigid block structure of one month of rest, one month of cardio, one month of that. But instead, you are allowed to follow the journeys of your patients. So, for mm -hmm. example, if I had a patient with a brain tumor, I get to see them in the emergency department, see them in the ward. And then when they go for their mapping and treatment with radiotherapy, I do my radiation or radiotherapy time instead of doing a whole rotation where I'm seeing, you know, 50-year-old woman with breast cancer, which is not relevant to my learning objectives. Right. I get to follow my patients to see what they do in radiotherapy. So it ties in more to your learning and your growth. Exactly. Mm. And instead of me doing a month in radiology and I'm seeing fractures and I'm seeing uh, pneumonia, I get to go to my patient, sit down with the radiologist, discuss the scans, and then they can evaluate me based on that. Mm. So that's really the future of where medical training is going, where you kind of tailor your own training and customize it to become the best physician that you can be at the end of your training with your own specific uh, learning objectives in mind. All right. And the last thing that I kind of wanted to touch upon here was a lot of people are debating, where do I go for residency? Do I go the States? Do I go Canada? Do I go stay in Kuwait? Do I, do I drop out of medicine? These are all, <laughs> you know, this is running through everyone's head. What do you think are how, how do you decide, you know, because when when sometimes you're faced with all of these options, listen, you go to the States, you're going to uh, get in. You know, if you go get into a program, you're going to come out a good doctor. Yeah. Canada, you're going to come out a good doctor. There's no place that I'm saying that I think, oh, you go there, you pop out a horrible doctor. Yeah. Right. So how do you pick? Well, when it comes to so there's two parts of it, I'm going to go on the first part, which is what you can do with a medical degree, and then the second part is when you decide to become a clinician. Right. So with a medical degree, some some people are kind of like pushed into medicine. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you know, your mom and dad are doctors, you have to be a doctor, or nice. you have to be a doctor, an engineer, pick one. You know, <laughs> okay, I hate physics, I like biology, I'm gonna be a doctor. You can do so much with a medical degree. Right? You can go into teaching, you can go into sales, you can work with um, pharmaceutical companies if you want. I'm, I don't advocate for that, but I'm just giving people options. And I really think that people underestimate the range that you have with a medical degree. Honestly, yeah. You, know, you, could, you could even teach high school biology if you want. Yeah, right? You'll be more qualified than half the teachers that work there anyway. <laughs> no disrespect to teachers. You guys are great. Um, and because of that, you should understand that it's okay to step out of clinical practice if you feel like it's going to provide you with a fulfilling career and something that you want. Right. It's not an absolute must. You can also do it parallel 
to your clinical career if you'd like. And that's cool. Um, so that would be my first part about what you can do with a medical degree, right? There's public health. You don't see patients. You make policies, right? right. You get involved. Um, you can be involved in national campaigns for advocacy. You can advocate for healthy practices. You can be involved in po um, population-based studies like in epidemiology. You can go into um, academia and you can teach basic sciences, mm -hmm. right? There's so much that you can do with your medical degree. When it comes down to your clinical training, you know, you know, you have to grow up. You know, I remember when I was told by, when I went to uh, the States, and one of my mentors, when I was telling him, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, he slapped me with, okay, when you decide what you want to do and you grow up, tell me, and then we'll talk <laughs> again. I was like, what? How dare he say I need to grow up? And then I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? He's right. Yeah. So you really have to be mature enough to know that you're making a decision. You have to think and really have good insight and look inside yourself and look at the world around you into what would provide you with the best training experience on the personal and professional level. Mm. You know, some places are more advanced than others in terms of academic structure and professionalism yeah. or administrative professionalism, you could argue, you know, but at the same time, it's also very individual based. You can take someone and put them in training in Uzbekistan and they'll be the best doctor in the world because that person has that drive and inspiration. And you can take someone, put them in Harvard Med, but they'll be a very mediocre average doctor because they lack that insight. Right. Um, I bear warning to those who go abroad for training that they have to understand that it's a solo mission. Mm. There's a lot of work involved, a lot of responsibility. It can be really tough. So, you know, you have to be able to make the mature decision of going, you know, I want to grow as a person because I know leaving this place to study in this place will equal one, two, three. Mm. And you got to really think about your personality and where your personality fits. Mm. You know, some people, their personalities were made for the Kuwait board and they love the Kuwait board and they gel so well with the faculty and their colleagues and fellow students and residents in the Kuwait board and fantastic for them as long as they pr promise to work hard with dedication and commitment and to improve the quality of the boards, you know, go ahead, do it in Kuwait. If you want to challenge yourself and you find that you want to have a unique life experience, you want to change things, and you want to have um, a different quality of education that's nationally, internationally accredited, then you can go to Canada. If you want to be heavily involved in research and you want to be on the cutting edge of medicine, then definitely go to the States. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, there, it's no secret that the States is probably, in terms of subspecialties in research, of course, yep. and as a healthcare system are miles ahead of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. While as in the UK, if you want to know how to work in public health services, if you want to know how to improve a healthcare system and try to figure out a system very similar to our own that has a strong academic uh, backing as well as very economically frugal, you know, how not to just, you know, a patient walks in, let's throw 20 scans and 300, you know. Yeah, that was a huge thing. It's all about cost effectiveness. The NICE guidelines in the UK, the number one determinant is cost effectiveness. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you take a thousand patients and you put them all through an MRI, yeah, I mean, you might find more than just the clinician examining them. But how much are you spending on those MRIs? You know, and you, how many life years are actually improved or adjusted because of it? Exactly. You know, and those are important things. You know, those are things that are very, very important to look of at. Course. They need to be studied. They need to be reviewed. 
So for those of you, you know, from our, our colleagues out there, if you want to know where should I go, I think you should surround yourself by individuals of different trainings and different backgrounds. And the ones that you relate to the most probably walk down their footsteps. That's, that's really good advice. That's really good advice. That, I think that, that clears up the waters a bit, uh, at least for me, you know, and knowing where I would like to go. Yeah. So like, let's say, you know, let's say you worked with me on the wards, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can be an acquired taste. Not everyone loves working with me and that's fine. And you know, I'm not the I can't imagine it. <laughs> You'd you, be surprised. Very, such very exciting, youthful energy to be around. You're going to be a per like you are a perfect per a pediatrician. I mean, attending or consulted pediatrician. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Pokemon for the win. Got to catch them all. So <laughs> never going to change that. I love it. But, um, you know, some people prefer to be more serious, you know, mm. and, and more calm and collected than I am. Or I'm, I'm a bit all over the place. Some people perhaps like the ones who carry themselves with a bit of prestige and whatnot. And, <laughs> and you know, everyone has their own ways of doing things. Yeah. I think as long as you treat your colleagues and your patients with dignity and respect, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, you know, if you see me and you're like, you know, I really like working with Fadis. I want to be just like him. You know, don't be just like me. Mm -hmm. Take what you like from me and be better than me. That's what I would like that's you to do. That's the words do. of a good mentor. Yeah, that's that's definitely what good what I hope good mentors aim for. And, yeah. you, know, you want to have, you know, your success is when those who come after you have done better than you, then you have succeeded. Yeah. And, you know, there's a big shift in that culture of mentorship in Kuwait particularly. Mm. Well, as before, I was like, you know, I'm the head honcho. I know everything. You guys' opinions don't matter. Follow my lead. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, pay attention in rounds. Look at who you're working with. Look at the department. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy. You can be in the same hospital, in the same department, but have a totally different experience because of the unit you're in. Absolutely. You know, really, yeah, some yeah. people will be like, I hate, I'm not calling out any units here. Don't come for me, guys. <laughs> but you could be in unit A and be like, oh, this unit sucks. I hate this person. And then someone comes in the next day. I love this unit. I want to be here forever. Yeah. Right. Some people go to Canada and like, yo, this system's great. I want to spend the rest of my life here. Some people go and like, I hate this nonsense. I've seen I, I've seen it so much. Just even with where you go for medical school, everything. The the it's not a one size fits all approach. It really isn't. Absolutely. So if there's definitely a skill that you need to pick up, I think it would be being adaptable, mm. being open minded and being prepared to work with anyone any given place or don't don't be rigid you know you have to be malleable you have mm. to you know be able to go with the flow if you will go with the punches roll yeah, with ro the punches roll with the punches perfectly you know there, there's going to come a day where you're going to be chewed up by the senior you know be it your consultant be it your senior you know everyone gets chewed up at some point right <laughs> and i don't agree with that you know but it happens right just be ready for it just be ready for it yeah. and one day you'll get feedback that you may, ah, this is nonsense. How, me? I'm not that good. But you, you have to sit down and really think about it and be like, okay, you know what? This should have been better. So, yeah. you know, something I'm proud of is the feedback that I give to um, medical students. I actually won awards in Canada for uh, teaching oh, wow. medical students. I'm not trying to say that to be like, look at me, but I'm grateful that they have trusted me and they've given that faith and gratitude to award me with something. And the approach I'd like to share is really pay attention when you're coaching someone. So when, some, when you're doing an observed history, listen to every word they say. Mm -hmm. Take notes. 
you know, write down what's going on. Don't just like, you know, doze off and be like, okay, okay, let's finish, let's mm -hmm. take this history. You know, when they do an exam, watch how their approach to the exam is so that when you give them feedback, you have specific things. It can't be, okay, read more. Mm -hmm. You know, I hate, I hate the feedback, read more. Everyone can read more. Oh, so, or when you ask them about, oh, this pathology or XYZ thing, and they go, you should read up on it. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's a cheap cop out. You oh, know? for sure. I, I I really am not a fan of that. You know, if if you know, sometimes I feel like it's even this, them saying like, okay, I don't know what to do. I'm gonna make them, you know, just yeah, be yeah. like, hmm, I don't recall. I have an idea. How about tomorrow we both go over it together? I'm gonna read and you read, and then we can discuss it. Yeah. As opposed to just dismissing to the read about it world. Um, I, that's for me the worst kind of feedback. You know. Uh, feedback has to be specific to tailored to that person. So it's like, you know, I noticed that you said to the patient, what brings you here? Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem nice. I would say, how may I help you today? Right. Another example is, you know, do you have any questions? Well, that can be dismissive because it means like, yeah, well, I have to go. Do you have questions? You yep. can be like, what questions do you have? Yeah. Which is more open and inviting and they're more likely to answer you. Right. And I was taught that by a junior, actually, and then I, in turn, taught it to my future juniors. So it just goes to show you how much you can learn by sitting with people and their approaches um, for physical exams, for knowledge, and then sitting down and going over a plan and be like, I like the way you think about this, but try this instead. Or, you know, you need to work on this. Um, and when it comes to knowledge, um, if you really want to succeed in guiding your juniors in what to read, provide them with a resource. Yeah. So, you know, one of my faculty at my university, I really appreciate him. His name is Dr. Craig Erker. You know, we were talking about Langerhans histiocytosis. And mm. I was like, oh, my God, this is so complicated. What do I do? He's like, okay, you know what, Paris? This is a paper called How I Treat Langerhans Histiocytosis from this journal. Go over it. Use that as a reference. And then if you're struggling with something, we can talk about it. And thanks to him, I'm much more confident looking at LCH and understanding it and how it's graded and, you know, how it's staged and how you treat it. So I really appreciate that effort. You know, it's literally one extra sentence. It's like, you know, doc, how, what do I do if a patient comes in with this problem, right? Like they have thrombocytopenia. Okay, you know, there's this book. It's called Nathan Anosky, and there's a chapter on thrombocytopenia. The first few pages go over the general causes of thrombocytopenia. And there's a table there that'll help you out. Once you go over that, maybe we can talk to each other and have a better discussion. So uh, yeah. they took in the effort to guide you in the right place, but you still have to do the effort to read. So I can't walk into clinic not reading, not doing anything, because that's poor preparation on my yeah. end. Yeah. And I have to have the insight and responsibility to be able to look at that and realize tomorrow I have three patients with neutropenia. I should read about neutropenia. Right. Right. Maybe I'll struggle finding a source. Maybe I'll have some information mixed up, but at least it shows the person I'm working with that I took the time and effort to learn. Yeah. As a responsible adult learner. And I think this is an important message for incoming junior doctors because I can tell you from my first year, for any of you who are watching or are about to graduate, you're going to be teaching medical students from day one. You get on the wards, if there's a medical student there, you you got to teach them because that's what why they're there and they'll thank you for it and if you're going to be a teacher might as well be a good one exactly it sticks with them don't teach for the sake of being heard 
know, <laughs> teach with a purpose. You know, Absolutely. If, if you're good at the abdominal exam or you do a mean neurological exam, give them that benefit, you know, or and, and make sure it's relevant and focused. You know, if someone's on the surgical ward and they're doing abdominal exams, don't sit them through a one hour monologue of your neurological exam. <laughs> Be, read the room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Faris, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, you've taught me a lot from this uh, episode that we've just done. And I, I'm always happy at the end of the episode when I've learned a lot because I know for a fact that whoever's watching is going to learn as well. Um, I know you've done a great, just an extension of your teaching. Everyone, now everyone who's watching, I hope they're benefiting and I'm sure they are. So thank you. Thank you very much. I see that's very kind of you. I'm, I'm humbled by your kind <laughs> words. And I hope that my advice uh, helps people out there. And I, too, have learned a lot and feel reconnected in with the future of Kuwaiti doctors. So thanks for having me. Anytime. Uh, well, everyone, that's the last sip of coffee for the day <laughs> from the hub. <laughs> so <laughs> just to remind you guys, the hubs uh, drinks, if we haven't emphasized it enough, very good. Um, in actually a, pretty good. It's, it's right next to Amiri Hospital. Whenever I'm, I'm in my break, I just head over there. So I hope you guys do the same. And uh, if you like what you see, please be sure to like, comment, subscribe, all that fun jazz. And follow us on, uh, on our socials, Instagram, everywhere for more. Till next time. Hope you all enjoyed this episode of The Doctor's Brew. New episodes to listen to with a cup of coffee coming your way every Sunday on YouTube and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Instagram for all the latest updates. See you next time.